I am Plata on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Arno Kopetsky joins me again. His new book, The Environmentalist Dilemma, Promise and Peril in an Age of Climate Crisis, is out today. He looks at how humanity seems to be doing better than ever, yet the planet may be dying. It's a paradox that he explores looking at how our reaction to climate change has evolved in recent years. It also looks at how the media frames stories on the climate crisis. Another fascinating area of the book is where Mr. Kopetsky looks at the historic relationship between the indigenous and the environmental movement. The environmental movement has its roots in white supremacy, and Arno explores that as well as the path forward. The book is engaging when he relates personal experiences. For example, his family's 2019 trip to Disneyland and all that uh, thoughtful questions uh, that arose out of a vacation, all things uh, to think about as travel starts happening shortly. Arno Kopetsky is uh, an environmental journalist and author whose dispatches from around the world have appeared in the Globe and Mail, the Walrus, the Literary Review of Canada, and Reader's Digest, among other publications. He was first on the program in uh, 2014 for his book, The Old Man and the Sea. It was shortlisted for the uh, 2014 Governor General's Award. His Twitter handle is at Arno underscore Kopetsky. He will be part of a Vancouver Writers' Fest event this Friday afternoon, along with uh, J.B. McKinnon, hosted by Laura Lynch. The event is at 2.30 uh, and is uh, at Performance Works. Visit writersfest.bc.ca for tickets. This new book is published by ECW. Please uh, welcome back to the Plant Online program, Arno Kopetsky. Mr. Kopetsky, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Um, the, the book is uh, often optimistic, Um how do I not lull myself into a false sense of optimism? <laughs> well, I think there's, there might be just enough doom and gloom in there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there to is, keep, yeah. To keep, to keep you down, <laughs> just, just, just when you start to get cheerful, I, I try to throw a couple daggers in. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but was it fun to, to, to uh, fun is not the right word, but it, it must have been interesting to look at, say, um, just how much good there is that's happening, even though, you know, it, it's, it was a pretty rough summer. Um, it's been a pretty rough four or five years. Um, I yeah. guess if we, if we if we look back, if we if we take a step back and look at it, uh, you know, on the whole, um, see the, the the forest for the trees, if you will, um, th- things are are not not terrible, are they? Well, you know, sometimes I think it's a it's as much a question of temperament and disposition as fact and, and reason and, and logic. Um, I'm, I'm temperamentally a pretty optimistic, uh, relatively cheerful fellow, which has a lot to do with my upbringing and, you know, being a white middle-class guy. I, I grew up with, with having a lot of stuff uh, go my way, and and maybe that has tempered my expectations. I know I've heard Obama speak once, and, and Barack Obama, who I, who I admire, he, he once said, you know, growing up a few blocks away from, from, from a beach in Hawaii, you know, colored the way I see the world. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's true of me, even though I grew up in Edmonton instead of Oahu. Uh, but, you know, if I marshal reason, I also think anybody who is involved in the struggle, you know, whichever struggle you want to think of, uh, I think of it in terms of environmental struggle. Uh, there's, you know, class and race and gender and various struggles, all of which are sort of merging right now, and, and I, I try to get at that in my, in my book. But anyone who's involved in those struggles, you quickly realize that you are in good company. There are a lot of brilliant, well-informed, passionate, and 
truly powerful people who were very awake to the problems, you know, colliding into our civilizational trajectory yeah. and are working very assiduously to, 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 you know, to forestall the worst and, and to bring a better future into being. And, and so, you know, that's, that's where I, I draw a lot of hope and optimism yeah. from without trying to be too, uh, rose, rose tinted about it all. Yeah. And then the, the other thing, you know, I, I think there is a lot of humor, mm-hmm. um, in in the world today, <laughs> even amidst or maybe because of some of the bleakness, you know, some of the humor is black. Yeah. Coming from Alberta, you know, one example that, that always makes me chuckle is how when Jason Kenney canceled the the carbon tax last, I think it was a couple of years ago now. They had to can they canceled the carbon tax because they hated it because it's evil because it killed jobs, and so they had a big they scheduled a big party in Alberta, the Alberta government scheduled sort of a celebration of, of the cancellation of, of this carbon tax and then they had to cancel the celebration first of all the celebration was to be held at a gas station because of course uh, <laughs> but then they had to cancel the celebration because of all the smoke from unseasonable forest fires caused <laughs> by climate change smoked them out so they yeah. had to cancel it and you know so there's that's just one example um not all of them are are bleak that way yeah. but there there are numerous examples of, of things that make me laugh about yeah. what's going on today yeah forest fires aren't funny but the, the fact that it, it, it's uh, this 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 episode is cast against that i think you have to find the the, the humor in that um yeah. that's the thing that that uh, you mentioned just before we started that we we lost talked about seven eight years ago for, for your previous book have you noticed a shift in in how people feel about the climate crisis i guess we're, we're calling it a crisis now a lot a lot more people are calling it a crisis now than than they were say seven eight years ago yeah it's true that's the phrase now it's not climate change it's mm-hmm. the climate crisis uh um, yeah, I mean, for sure. I, I, I don't think it's, it's, uh, you don't need to be a journalist or a writer to notice that, uh, people are a lot more worried about climate change now in the general public than, than ever before. And, uh, you know, the reasons are obvious. It's the, the you know, we live in Vancouver, but most, many cities, at least in, in North America, have, have a lot of smoke blowing into them. Um, you know, floods, fires, things are getting pretty cinematic. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's just been building for so long and, and getting ever closer to our doors. Kind of an analogy I, I think of sometimes is I think it's, it's like watching a movie. You know, we all, we all knew that climate change was, was out there, but it was something that was on our screens more and in the news. Mm-hmm. And then we're, so we're watching this movie and then all of a sudden, you know, as we're watching a movie about fire and floods, you know, water is starting to come into the, through the front door and smoke is starting to come in through the windows and, and the movie, you know, we can turn the movie off, and it's now arrived at our doorstep. And, mm. and so, you know, people are very well aware of that. The um, uh, you say in the beginning of the book, one of the reasons that, that I guess we we uh, sort of lose sight of the big picture is that there is so much going on. There's so much to distract us a lot that's not good. Um, in, in terms of the role that the media should play in in covering the the climate crisis, as it should. Um, I mean, you're a journalist. I mean, how do you think you and your colleagues should do better, say? Well, I think acknowledging it um, <laughs> is, is one place to start. You know, I, I don't want to throw a bunch of shade at my colleagues in, in, in journalism, especially, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a reporter. I, I don't, I'm not pounding the streets every day and, and meeting daily deadlines. And for those who are, I have nothing but respect. Um, the industry has been torn to pieces. They're, mm-hmm. 
less of them when they have more to do for less with less resources than ever before. So I want to acknowledge that. But I also think, um, you know, Sean Holman, uh, who's another climate uh, journalist who's um, anyways, he, he did a, an analysis a couple of years ago, uh, I think it was in the 2018 fires, mm-hmm. and um, he found that, you know, he, he analyzed, did a meta-analysis of all the newspaper reports that covered the fires that of this horrendous, horrific fire season in, in Canada. Yeah. And um, I forget the exact number, but it was something like 30% of the newspaper reports and news reports of, that described those fires and talked about those fires made any mention of climate change whatsoever. Mm. So, uh, you know, the basic things like that, um, that's just really a rudimentary thing that needs to get called into the question. Um, I think the bigger challenge is how do you incorporate, you know, climate analysis into, you know, education, When if you think you're talking about education or if you think you're talking about, you know, economic growth, if you think you're talking about national security, if, you know, all those things have, everything now has a a climate lens because climate change is is a threat multiplier, and as as the Pentagon says. So, you know, that's one thing. And then even, I would say that even trickier than that is that climate change is actually not the, the big thing. Climate change is itself a symptom of of a much greater and even more intractable problem, which is related to, you know, human consumption mm. and infinite growth on a, on a finite planet. I mean, we could swap out every internal combustion engine on the planet for, a, for an electric vehicle and, you know, completely electrify, green electrify everything. And we could still, you know, we would solve climate change by just accelerate uh, this this plundering of the earth <laughs> that yeah. is that's going on. So those are those are big existential crises questions, and, and they're happening at the same time as we're reckoning with with race and gender violence, and you know, the U.S. is descending into a strange form of madness that mm-hmm. I think is related to all this, and, and is a form of extreme denial of, of some of the issues that I've. Yeah. About. yeah, I should acknowledge, I mean, as I said earlier, I mean, things are looking up, but at the same time, um, when one says that humanity is doing better, despite the planet dying, um, the better part is, is, is never equally shared by the people on the planet. No, indeed, it's debatable. And, and, you know, let's be clear, I'm the one saying humanity is doing better than ever before um, in many ways, and that's sort of one of the premises of my book is that, you know, things have never been so good for so many uh-huh. humans at the same time as the world is falling apart and, and what a strange state of affairs and that is and, and the cognitive dissonance that creates. And and you're right, and, and I, I do I also acknowledge, you know, as soon as you say that, a thousand caveats spring up and you have mm-hmm. to point out, well, for a lot of people, this is certainly not the best time to be alive. And, you know, we can't forget those. And that's one of the dilemmas that one faces as as an environmentalist is how do you focus on, you know, the well-being of, you know, orchid populations in the Everglades or monarch populations in in Michoacan, Mexico, while, you know, humans are dying and starving in our neighborhood. I live mm-hmm. in the east end of Vancouver, and I, there's a homelessness and an addiction crisis and a, and a huge traumatized population that 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 you know lives right literally right outside my my doorstep mm-hmm. and. Um, so, you know, we have to grapple with all these things, and, and I think the key is, to me, the key is sort of interconnecting all of those 
whether we're storytellers or policymakers or just everyday folks who are trying to think about these things and talk about them with our friends or our children to recognize that these issues are, are really interrelated and, yeah. and, and to treat them as such. But, you know, it, it for me and in, in my book, I, you know, that at one level, I, I think part of what, what frustrated me is and what, what drew me to, to, to write this book and what, what, you know, was a little bit frustrating about the public discourse is it was either people saying, well, things have never been so good or versus people saying, well, things have never been worse. Yeah, yeah. And that extremity and the black and whiteness of it, um, it just seemed you know, very simplistic, and, and neither of those statements are entirely true. So yeah. it's, in some ways, my book is like a wrestling match between Steven Pinker and, and David Wallace-Wells. Uh, uh, um, the, the, um, the, the discussion that you have in the book about race, I think, is fascinating. Um, oh, thank you. Because a lot of people talk about how the environmental movement today is predominantly um, white. Um, or, or perhaps not welcoming to to people who are, um, uh, say, who are um, um, uh, who are who are ethnic. I'm, my parents are Filipino, so I, I feel like I'm Filipino. Um, yeah. People I know are are, are, are my cohort say are not um, inclined in, uh, to, to environmental issues as they should be. Um, and, and and you look at it historically that that um, these roots. Um, go back to, to say, the, the founding of the Sierra Club or, or uh, mm-hmm. the National Park Service in the United States. Um, these things are deep. It's not something that's newer that happened in the last 20 years or so, right? That's right. I think we're emerging from that, and I think we've the environmental movement as a whole has, has come a long way. Um, it hasn't come all the way, but it's certainly true, and I, this is what I go into is that history of, you know, honestly, I, I don't use this, term lately, but white supremacy is at the heart of the, the birth of the environmental movement in North America and, and much of the world. Uh, right here in Canada, our national parks were are basically crime scenes. They were when they you know when when Banff was created, they they very explicitly kicked out all the First Nations who were living within there and banned them from ever returning. Yeah, and then you know that that pattern was repeated throughout, and and a lot of the you know the ideas and the language. Um, including with John Weir, who's the, the founder of the Sierra Club, had this vision of, of purity and, and, you know, nature as this pristine, pure place where, you know, unsullied by humans, but if humans were to go there, it would certainly be white humans. We have to remove all the brown, indigenous folks. And, you know, that, that ethos uh, just permeated the whole movement uh, quite unconsciously i suppose it was you could say it was product of their times but mm-hmm. nevertheless you know come to the modern age and you know examples continue and i um there's the you know greenpeace and you know had this huge campaign against seal fur back in the i think that was the 70s 80s yeah. you know no. totally unaware that for inuit people that that was their livelihood and mm-hmm. it was a totally sustainable livelihood um, I, I, and I do think that the environmental movement has come a, a million miles since then, and you know you can't paint the whole movement with a with a single brush. Obviously, um, there are better and worse elements within it, but I think you know it, it's. I'll just say that it, it's it's come a long ways. I yeah. think uh, environmentalists have learned how to be allies, as we say today, and 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 to not just 
use and and exploit indigenous interests when it when it suits them. But I do still think it happens. You know, when if a if a First Nation actually wants to, you know, develop a, an oil resource or or log some old growth, uh, the environmental movement generally doesn't really know what to do with that or, or how to react to that, and so they just try to sort of look the other way and talk about something else. Yeah, the, 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 you, you quote someone in the book um, whose name I, I forgot to write down. Um, the the uh, indigenous and the environmental movement, you know, they, they have the same goals. They're, they're walking towards the same place, but uh, though they may not be holding hands, they are still going to the same destination, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Catherine Tanis, who mm. is the the, the, uh, the chief of of the Tunaha First Nation, and uh, yeah, she said, you know. First Nations and, and environmental groups, we may be walking in the same direction, but we're not holding hands. Uh, I, I thought that was a great, illuminating thing to hear and, and yeah. for her to say. And, you know, she's the Tunaha Nation. They live in uh, what is what we think of as, you know, South Central BC in the Purcell Mountains, where Jumbo Glacier is what was going to, you know, they fought a 25 year yeah. battle to prevent their sacred mountains from turning into a, a ski resort. Uh-huh. And they won. And and uh, and it's now becoming a, a indigenous. Uh, protected area, the tribal park, basically, and so that was a really fascinating thing. Where you know, in in, in their people's eyes, in the Tuna for the Tunaha Nation, that region is a sacred mountain. And it's the home of the grizzly spirit, and, and you know, I can't really describe what it is to them, but it's a it's a very religious, sacred ground that also happens to be very biodiverse and and ecologically um, abundant. You know, and but for the environmental community. It was either a place to ski, and they didn't want, you know, machines and ski lifts getting in the way of their backcountry touring, or yeah. it was, you know, a, a place of ecological abundance, and they didn't want people in there at all. You know, so they they, they valued it for these different reasons, and and the alliance was uh, fraught, I would say. Yeah. That's what she was getting at. Yeah. The um the um uh the language of environmentalism. You write in in the book about uh, its relationship to religion. I'm not a religious person, but I found that uh, section of the book quite fascinating as well. Mm. Um, uh, j- just as, in terms of as a fan of language, about how it's evolved and how it's used or deployed in in various situations. Um, what, what was that like to, to research? Say, well, you know, wherever possible, I try to avoid research by just talking to people yeah, yeah. <laughs> who have done it for me. Um, and so I think a couple of the people that I that maybe you're thinking of that I brought up were were one of them is uh, a fellow named Harold who is a retired Anglican minister who had become an organizer for Extinction Rebellion here in mm, Vancouver. And, right. Uh, so you know I, I have a, a chapter about a year that I spent with Extinction Rebellion, and, and he was Harold is one of the people I was drawn to. And I just yeah I'm not religious either, but I've I've long been drawn to the the parallels in language and imagery. Especially in you know the Bible and in Christianity of fire and flood, you know that overlays quite quite neatly with with uh, the imagery that uh, climate change evokes, and I think you know notions of original sin also overlay pretty neatly with you know greed and consumption and and cap you know the, the worst excesses of capitalism. Um, you could see the Bible in some ways as, as a parable for for. Unrestrained and unfettered capitalism. Yeah. It, so, sorry, it, go ahead. It was it was fun to not fun, but I mean it was interesting to see the media start using um, uh, language or, or images 
from the Bible, you know, whether it was locusts coming in or, or, or the, the fires or the smoke. Yeah. In, in, in when we would hear about news stories about what's happening with, with, with climate, uh, you know, the climate emergency and the sort. So I think it's, it's, um, it almost comes full circle, doesn't it? It really does. You know, no, nobody's original. We all, we all grasp for our languages and, and, and visualizations from, from previous, from people who have, who have already set up a, a scaffolding, I think. And, and the environmental movement, or not even the environmental movement, but anybody who's trying to describe what's going on today and grappling with these huge existential questions and, and facing calamity in the forms that it's coming in right now, well, where, who, you know, what's the language that's out there? And who, what are the traditions that have been grappling with these questions? You know, minus the technology. Um, but otherwise, you realize all these questions are, are, are not new. <laughs> Yeah. And people have, you know, for thousands of years been, been grappling with them and, and, and formulating ways to think about them and, and deal with them. And, and again, I'm not religious, but uh, that part of the Christian religion and, and, and every religion um, is something that I, that I have great respect for. The, um, I don't know how many people have read the book already, but um, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, as people will read your book, because they should, um, how many people come up to you and say that um, you made them want to go to Disneyland? <laughs> well, uh, that's a very good question, Joe, and I, I look forward to reporting back on that. Uh, the, <laughs> the book hasn't technically been released yet, although I think you know deliveries are starting to arrive in doorsteps, so I've started to get a few uh-huh. whispers. Um, my mom has not expressed any desire to go to Disneyland, I, I can tell you that. I'm yeah. pretty hard on Disneyland in, in this obviously, as, as you know, uh, but also, you know, my daughter sure had a good time there, and and uh, so that's, again, the thing that I wrestle with. Yeah, and, and, yeah. yeah. It, it, for, for people listening to us, I mean, it, it, um, um, this is why the book is so engaging and fun sometimes, is, is that um, you, you talk about, say, just the joy on, on, on your kid's face as um, she experiences Disneyland for the first time. Yeah. And and you do wrestle as you're even thinking of going there about um, you don't really want to go either, um, <laughs> but this is something that all kids have to do, uh, I guess. Uh, I, I never as a kid wanted to go, and and nor do I now at uh, nearly forty. But um, I don't know. Part 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 of it. Um, part of me, you know, wonders not just about Disneyland, but about don't other. Don't do it, Joe. Don't go. Don't go. <laughs> but but other places that you know these these, these <laughs> tourist traps that, that we all inevitably go to. Well, we haven't in the last eighteen months or so. But um, you know, even just family vacations, seeing family far away, um, you wrestle with that. You 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 talk about say climate guilt, if you will, um, yeah. uh, about flying places or even having children. I mean, you pose that question uh, in that part of the book, don't you? Totally. Um, you know, and and so you know the. The chapter we're talking about is, you know, about taking my daughter to Disneyland for her fourth birthday, and uh-huh. my wife and I did it because, you know, we had done it when we were kids, and we thought, well, it's a way to connect and, you know, our lives with her life and sure. share yeah. this, this delight and give her delight. So we did it, and, uh, you know, and then as soon as you do that, if you're paying attention at all, you start to, you know, the cognitive dissonance of of my daughter's sheer delight because she loved every second of it. She's four years old. Yeah was then and and but for me it was you know total hell um <laughs> just the you know the corporate vice yeah. grip on imagination and this lifelong consumer ethos and then of course the you know the climate impact of, of just jumping on a plane and flying somewhere for fun yeah 
And so then, you know, the the thing that it all evokes is, well, you know, as as we become more and more aware of 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 the climate crisis, to just talk about it in those terms, um, we become aware of our complicity in it because there's really no way that you can participate in in civilization and society yeah. without being complicit to some extent because we're all bound up in this system that that you know so I could become a climate monk I suppose and go move to the top of a mountain and remove my tiny little part of the equation but that's not helping anything either and and you know so I rather than come to a, a stiff conclusion about well this is how many travel miles we should all be allotted uh-huh. um, for me, the you know, I think that the point of the, that chapter and, and the, the place my meditation got me to was was just a, a, almost a practice of awareness of, of being aware of of the moments that we are you know emitting more yeah. carbon dioxide than we should, and, and rather than flagellate ourselves for not being perfect climate citizens, um, you know, just like any meditation practice, you just you try to go back to zero, and every day is a new day, and, and you, you try to be aware of, of where you could do better without hating yourself for not doing the best possible job, and, and you you just keep striving. And, you know, 20 years ago, it was easy to not even notice. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I flew all, all over the world, uh, sometimes for work, sometimes for fun. Uh-huh. Um, but I think for the next 20 years, I'm, you know, just speaking personally, every Every trip is going to have a bit more of a calculation behind it, and, and thinking, "Well, is this worth it? Is there something else I could do?" Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, that's the argument that a lot of people make. That, uh, well, you know, why should we in Canada think about these things when when people in China or the, the government of China, at least, is is not doing anything at all? Yeah. And and that sort of you know us versus them sort of thing, uh, you know, is, is never helpful, is it? Well, it's kind of a juvenile argument, isn't it? I mean, I. Have, I hate to keep bringing yeah. my daughter into this, but as I raise my daughter, and you know, if a bunch of kids are beating each other up in the playground, and she <laughs> says, "Well, yeah. why don't I just punch this little kid next to me?" It's not like you know everyone else is yeah. doing way more of it. So you know, obviously, anybody who has like a shred of moral logic, um, just that argument that well, other people are doing it, so why? What difference does it make if I don't do it? That is that is such a <laughs> childish cop out. Yeah. It almost doesn't bear uh, arguing with, but of course we have to because some of our national politicians are arguing just that. Yeah, they, we, we, that's the other thing, talking about uh, context and, and, and uh, the passage of time, if you will. Uh, we, we've just had a federal election, and it seems that the, the climate crisis was, was a bit of an afterthought. I, did, did you notice that? I mean, we, we sort of spent days talking about abortion or, and guns. Um, I don't know if we, we talked enough about the climate crisis, eh? Yeah, you know, I don't know. I feel like maybe I'm probably going to bring down the wrath of my climate colleagues. I, I thought it got a fair amount of attention. You know, in the one English debate, it was certainly there was an entire section on it. It felt like the whole election was, was very rushed. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm somewhat grateful for that. Um, I'm glad we don't have protracted year-long affairs. Uh, yeah. But in that, in the rush of it, um, you know, did anything get the full attention it deserved? Yeah, yeah. Um, it seemed like it was top of mind for a lot of voters. I think, of course, I always want more to be said about it. I wish that the Conservatives could have been hammered a lot harder for having just a few months before the election voted against the phrase 
climate change is real. Uh-huh. Um, so they're basically, you know, I think Aaron O'Toole, O'Toole believes in climate change, but I think he is has a party that is right. very explicitly refusing to acknowledge that reality and is really just going along with the motions of it. So, you know, that part I'd like to see more of. But every other party in Canada except the Conservatives is very explicit about climate change being real, and they're really just competing to see who can have the best plan to fight it. Yeah. And so we can critique those plans and lament that the official opposition is, is what it is in terms of its denial of climate change. Yeah. Um, but I think Canadian, you know, I'd, I'd actually draw some hope and, and confidence from that, that I think Canadians as a whole and, and the majority of Canadian voters are extremely worried about climate change and, and really want something to be done about it. Yeah. Um, I've enjoyed uh, the book and enjoyed uh, 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 talking to you today about it, Arno. Congratulations on it and good luck with it. Thank you so much. It was great to chat with you, too. The website for more is at uh, writersfest.bc.ca. That's for the event this Friday, 2.30 p.m., uh, with uh, J.B. McKinnon and Laura Lynch. Uh, Arno's Twitter handle is at Arno underscore Kopetsky. This new book is published by ECW. Arno Kopetsky joined me on the line from here in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plunton.